Women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your voice. Hello, and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about and with the change-making women of Princeton University. My name is Liz Fuller-Wright, and I'm sitting in for host Margaret Koval, who is away this week. With me today is Oscar award-winning documentary filmmaker Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli, who is a member of the great class of 2000. As part of her senior thesis, Chai created a documentary about young people in war-torn Kosovo, Two years later, a version of that film won Best Documentary at the Tribeca International Film Festival. Chai has gone on to produce and direct award-winning films all over the world, including three in West Africa, one in the Himalayas, and one in Yosemite National Park. And on February 24th, Chai won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Film for Free Solo. Chai, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. Can we start with you telling us about Free Solo? Well, Free Solo chronicles the kind of eight-year dream of free soloist Alex Honnold. Um, To free solo means to climb without ropes or any protection. And so Alex had dreamed of free soloing Yosemite's El Capitan. So just for context for our listeners, El Capitan is 3,000 feet tall, nearly vertical. So that's like climbing the Empire State Building three times with your fingertips and toes. Yes. And also El Capitan is kind of this iconic formation for the climbing world. It, you know, when you go to Yosemite Valley, it, you know, El Cap just rises above it. And Yosemite also is just a really special place. You kind of imagine it's where unicorns come from, or you can imagine the dinosaurs roaming the earth. <laughs> um, it's just it's a special, special place. And so beautiful in your film. I love the way you captured the natural beauty of the area. So the I can't decide which must have been the biggest challenge for you, the technical challenge of hanging cameramen off of a granite face or the emotional challenge of knowing the risks involved. One of the climbers in your film described it as competing in an Olympic event where if you don't win the gold medal, you fall off a mountain and die. That must have put incredible pressures on you as well as on Alex. So I made the film with my filmmaking partner and also my husband, um, Jimmy Chin, who is a professional climber. Well, I think the hardest part was wrestling with the ethical question that's the existential heart of this entire movie, which is kind of this classic idea of the observer effect. If by observing something, you're likely to change it. Like, is Alex more likely to fall because we're there filming? Mm-hmm. And it was something that Jimmy and I have wrestled with for a very long time. And where it ended up was because we had an idea of making a character portrait about Alex. And Alex said, if there's any film to make, the only film to make is if I try to free solo El Cap, which changed the dimensions. Um, So technically, we had, led by Jimmy, um, we had a team of elite professional climbers. And they're just not professionals. They're really the best of the best. Like they each, if you look each one up, you know, they held their own first ascents. And they're also cinematographers. And so... That's just an extraordinary combination of skills mm. to hold a 45-pound camera mm. while hanging off a 1,000-foot rope. And no craft services. You're a one-man <laughs> band. Um, and they're, they're great. And also they were very, they're very close. They're kind of part of our – you know, these are people that Jimmy's worked with for 20 years that Alex has known for 20 years. So it was a very close group of people. But, you know, at the end of the day, it really came down to this idea of whether or not we trusted Alex – to make the right decisions, and whether or not we trusted ourselves to treat his story with respect no matter what. And so Alex has thought more about his own mortality than really anyone else I know. He has made a choice to live this life because that's the life that is meaningful to him. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, at the end of the day, we believed in that. Like, people often ask, like, would the film have been different if the outcome had been different? And I'm like, the film wouldn't have been different. It was always about honoring Alex's vision. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't about sensationalizing it. It got more tricky when we realized that Alex was falling in love in front of a camera. <laughs> that was a complication we had never anticipated. You know, that suddenly there were two mountains. Like, is he able to evolve emotionally to be a partner to someone? Is that possible while he's pursuing this outrageous dream? Um, so... You know, really, it came down to insulating Alex from all of our own concerns and trying to give him the space to do his work. And uh, sorry to spoil the film, but he doesn't die. He succeeds. <laughs> he summits El Cap. Yes, thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes. And then, so he had summited his mountain, and then you and Jimmy got to summit yours, creating this documentary and telling this story. So what's been your journey since the film came out about six, seven months ago? Well, you just never know how a film is going to land with audiences. So it's been incredibly humbling to see this kind of outpouring from people who see the film saying that Alex's courage inspires courage in them, that they, mm -hmm. you know, I think especially in kind of these troubled or turbulent times, like find inspiration in his perseverance and his ability just to, you know, you, if you work really, really hard, like you can do anything. Is that why you think people connect to the film? Is that that's the emotional core? I think that people do connect with this just kind of inspiring story of someone who started, you know, I think we all know what fear is. And, you know, he worked really hard to move through his fears. And I think it's also there's a, you know, there is a very exciting visual, like, you know, exciting, thrilling storyline. Like it is harrowing to, and visceral and terrifying to watch Alex as he does this climb. But it was really mostly about how to provide enough context so audiences who don't climb can can understand what the type of work he put in. And, you know, I think what ended up happening is that as he was falling in love in front of the cameras, suddenly Alex is evolving emotionally. Mm -hmm. And that is very, and Sonny, who, um, who appears in the film and is, they're still together, she is kind of a mirror for us of like someone who really is trying to get her head around what he does. So if we can take a step back mm -hmm. from just Free Solo, you've created documentary films on an incredible range of topics, from young journalists in war-torn Kosovo, to a pop singer, to a presidential election, to a pilgrimage, to technical climbing. How do you find your stories? What draws you to the stories you choose? Well, the stories always have to have, I mean, you spend so much time on these films that you have to really be moved and passionate about the story that you're telling. For me, it's always come down to this very simple notion of like, will this make, you know, things, the world, something a little bit better? And am I in the right position to translate this? Are we, am I shining a light on something that is otherwise going to be ignored um, or reframing it in some way because it should be reframed that way? Um, there's always been a political element to the work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kosovo is a good example. Like we were, like there was genocide in the middle of Europe in the 20th century, in the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st. Yeah. And how is that possible after Bosnia and the Dayton Accords? And, and after the Holocaust, we all yeah, swear yeah. we'd never forget. 100%. And also that there was a real misunderstanding of what was at stake and what, who were these people that we were bombing and who, like what was happening. So that inspired that film, like to be able to go and to realize that, you know, especially with A Normal Life, that the subjects of that film were exactly the way I was. And Hugo Barkley, who made another Princeton student who made the film with me, 
um, they were like us. Like they, you know, we had more opportunity because of where we were born, and that seemed unfair and also something that that people should think about and discuss and talk about. Um, it's interesting because Kosovo that had recently had the twentieth anniversary of the bombing, mm-hmm. and they played the film, which was a really moving thing for me. Um, and I don't know, I got so many kind notes from the people who participate in that film, and that was just it was a very special. Um, you know, actually, and one of the subjects ended up coming to Princeton. Oh, um, really? He went to Woody Woo, yes, <laughs> over by Atari, and now he works at the Pentagon. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that was the film you started as a student here at Princeton. Yes. And I actually spoke with your senior thesis advisors, Michael mm-hmm. Wood and Sandy Berman. And Professor Wood said this. He said, documentarians don't just show you the truth. The truth is not as easily accessible as that. They imagine the truth, and then they show you what they've imagined. So how do you imagine the truth of a story? And then what tools do you depend on to show that to your audiences? That's such a Professor Woodism. <laughs> <laughs> I remember back then, like every time he spoke, it would take me a few like minutes to let it sink in and then try to understand it. <laughs> and then like this profound insight would emerge. Um, it's true. And it, it kind of goes back to that original work I did here at Princeton um, with Professor Berman and Professor Wood about looking at the politics of translation and how we perceive things. And, you know, I personally think the documentary film is governed by journalistic ethics. Like, it, that should be the code of conduct. It's just you're, you're laden with this burden of having to tell a story over a certain amount of time visually. And, you know, unlike in fiction, like in fiction, basically, if you have a problem, you write yourself out of it. In nonfiction, you truly do not know what's going to happen next. And in a way, the problems become the most interesting part of it because you can't, you, you can't write your way through. You need to find a way through. So yeah, I mean, I think you go following you following a sense of what you think is true. You discover it there, and then it becomes about that translation. And at the end of the day, you know, you know, the Oscar. Everyone's talking about the Oscar, like, and that's very exciting. It was it was amazing to win an Oscar. Um, but the the most amazing part of it was that the next day I got phone calls and emails from people from every single film I've ever made, mm. and. You know, you just never know how people are going to receive your films, and especially people who are in it. And if when they, when you show a film, the subject of the film, your film, and they can see the truth and understand why the decisions were made and why warts and all are being shown, like that's very mm-hmm. meaningful. Your thesis was part of your concentration in comparative literature. So, for those unfamiliar with Complet at Princeton, it requires fluency in at least one non-English language, and encourages students to look at the roots of storytelling across languages, across cultures, across media. I love that you keep talking about translation in your work in Kosovo. You're translating a story to the film medium. Is is that what drew you to Complet as a program? Yes. Both my parents are immigrants, and my father is Hungarian, and my mother is Chinese, and I grew up with multiple languages. So I was interested in how you see the world through those multiple languages. You know, there are many words for one thing and how you perceive a particular object. And, you know, the world is very diverse. And to be able to see that and embrace it was something interesting to me. Um, And Complit provided a wonderful space to be able to explore these questions. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in literature and poetry. And, you know, Complit was kind of this, you you could bring all of that together. And, you know, film was a medium that, you know, another language that they accepted in some way. You know, like you were allowed to look at film and poetry and philosophy and see where they intersect. Mm -hmm. 
So you've described yourself, if we can step back a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you said you were a bookish kid. You loved to read. So where did the transition come between the written word and film as a storytelling medium? If you were going to make a documentary about your own creative journey, what would be the key stops along that that you would need to, to convey to the audience? I think it's two things. Um, I was a bookish kid. I my father's a professor, and I always thought I would be a professor of, you know, of science. And, you know, I pursued that. And then I think it was basically after my freshman year that my father finally said to me, "He's like, if you don't, if you're not enjoying this, like, go do what you enjoy." And it's strange because I think literature was always a little bit harder for me. Writing was always harder, but that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And I found myself very moved by the way emotions were were conveyed in stories and also how, you know, like still to this day when I'm trying to think about a storyline for a film, I go back to the classics like, you know, the Iliad, you know, the Odyssey, you know, the Aeneid to look at how people like how those stories, those little stories were shaped. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the stakes? How was how was it conveyed? Um, so that was always just where I was engaged. So. But, you know, journalism or, or drama school were kind of like the two ways I was going to go. Uh -huh. And then I began making a normal life for like it was I was a junior and it demanded to be finished. So mm. I finished the film um, subsequently. It took me two years after school. And then and then the film did really well. And it kind of it, it posed a question like, was it worth it to go to drama school anymore? You know, did or I or film school or film school? I mean, it was always going to be drama school over film school, just because really? I felt like, I mean, I'd made a film, right? <laughs> so you learned. You, I learned so much on like in it. Um, I, had, I had a privilege of working with some wonderful mentors and editors, cinematographers who taught me a lot. And I always thought that in a way that it was the the like dramatic arts that would teach you a little bit more about, about story, mm -hmm. but. You know, I just was embarked on this nonfiction journey, and it turned out that I preferred that, you know, feature-length form than ever going back to trying to be a journalist. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I think if, as a journalist, I would have loved to be like a written, like a, you know, work for the New York Times or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't know. You do get a, a depth and a richness of storytelling with a documentary that just isn't available when you're limited to the written word. There's an emotion that you can carry with the, the images and the, the soundtrack and, and the editing together and juxtaposing things um, that it, it's harder to convey in a, a journalistic piece. I think writing's much harder. I just think, I mean, I get to work with wonderful teammates, essentially. You know, I get to work with the best of the best. We get to collaborate on making, creating this piece. Um, and they translate my vision, you know, so to speak. Whereas... I still, I mean, I look at every writer with so much respect. I don't, to be alone and doing that, like, that's hard. But you get to be part of a team, and that's important to you? Yes. I mean, filmmaking is very much a team situation. Um, it's just too complicated. There are too many parts of it. So to, to step back a little bit, I, what was the piece between your, your childhood and your time here in Complet? What brought you to Princeton? What, what called you here? It was a really beautiful day, the day that I had my tour. <laughs> I went to an all-girls school in New York City, and they were like, this is, you know, my college advisors were like, it's a small school, it's ish, you know, like, 
as opposed to other schools I was looking at. And they mm -hmm. said it was an intimate environment where they thought I would thrive. And then I came here and it was just absolutely gorgeous. And it was an hour away from home. So that was also very compelling to me. And home was Manhattan? Yes, home was Manhattan. And I was just, I'm just very close to my family. And so it felt, you know, I don't know, it felt, and also I had a very good friend who was coming. There were lots of reasons that Princeton appeared and I felt very lucky to be able to come. So in many ways, you are exactly what Princeton hopes its graduates will be. You're curious, creative, inventive, open to the world. Can you tell us something that you learned or experienced here that you've carried with you? I can tell you about an experience I had my freshman week, which um, was I had been an exchange student in Japan after 10th grade, and I was very interested in Japanese literature. And I arrive and I realize that Kenzaburo Oe has teaching here. And my freshman week, I actually went to his office, knocked on the door. I mean, I'm 17 at the time, you know, <laughs> and was like, hi, my name is Chai. Can we talk? And that is just such a Princeton moment, right? To have mm -hmm. that intimate access to some of the greatest voices of our moment, of our time. Um, and that really opened so many doors. And also just it wasn't like a possibility. It, everything was possible. It wasn't there were like the ideas of limits or people saying no to you, like didn't seem to exist in this in this special place because you had access. But the question the question was, how did Princeton? What did I take from Princeton? Or what have you carried with you? What have I carried with me? Is there anything that you've kept in your back pocket all this time? Well, yes. I mean, I've certainly kept my friends. You know, some of my closest friends went to Princeton. Many of whom were in the comparative literature department, and. You know, it's so funny, like re really right now I have my copy of the Iliad on my desk that I have my notes from um, Fagel's class seminar in and I still consult them. Like I have my poetry book, the same books that I used are always in my office and I go back to them when I'm stuck. And, you know, I just, I don't know, I felt, so, I feel like I found so many wonderful teachers here. Um, Princeton, the idea of allowing me to go to Kosovo as part of my senior thesis <laughs> when there wasn't a film production major yet. Um, and there still isn't. I, I know. I remember Professor Sidney being like, no. And then I was like, but still. And he was like, no. And then we did it. You know? um, or I mean, there was just always this idea of possibility and some of the just such wonderful guidance and teaching and a very, um, what's the word? It's, it was very, very nurturing. You know? mm -hmm. And that was... But you like I I always liken it to kind of like a frog in boiling water. Like you don't really realize how you're at the tip or the frontier of something, or like surrounded by such excellence, just because it is. Uh, they did a survey of complete majors and found that only four percent are in the performing and visual arts. Uh, there's about a third who are in business or finance, a third who are professors or teachers, the other third are divided among writers, lawyers, and doctors. But not many go into the the visual performing arts. But it sounds like it prepared you really well to be a storyteller. Yes, Complet prepared me very well to be a storyteller. Um, but I really enjoyed the the philosophy part of it too, where you could think about just the ideas um, and cha challenging the forms. Mm -hmm. You know, I do mm -hmm. think that if you wanted to be go into um, become a creative writer, you should you know study creative writing. You know, <laughs> or you know, or like an English. They were just they were. I'm sure there are other you know paths to get where you get. But I think for me. Um, I feel like a bunch of journalists come out of Complet, right? I feel like I know of several journalists from my. That's time. part of that final third: the yeah. writers, lawyers, and doctors. Yes, but I yes. think it, like I, I always understand that it's. I mean, there are a lot of my former 
you know, complet colleagues are editors of magazines and editors of newspapers, and um, which I think is not so far away from what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think really it was about challenging the form that was interesting in comparative literature, and that really I've brought that to all of my work. So what was a course you took outside of Complet that made a lasting impact or maybe surprised you? Well, I mean, Professor Sidney's cinema studies, was that count as outside of Complet? Professor Wood's murder class was amazing. And it was not it was not taught as part of the comparative literature department. It was American studies. My freshman, um, what do you call them, like the the seminar, the freshman seminar mm-hmm. about at-risk youth at Woody Woo. That, I mean, that was amazing. Um, again, feeding into the work that I ultimately did. It's interesting. The documentary film class now, it, it, there is one that's taught. It's it's part of the program in visual arts, which is a certificate program. And it's often cross, cross-listed with, with Woodrow Wilson School because so much of documentary filmmaking has a, a social or political aspect to it. Yes, yes. I mean, yes. So I think that you know, it's a, very, it's not such a prof, like profitable profession that you have to have other reasons why you're interested in it, and often it is to give voice to those who do not have a voice and with very, with very political kind of subtext. So that is a documentarian. Essentially, they're normally very political. <laughs> All right. So I have two final questions mm-hmm. for you. One is, what advice do you have for would-be filmmakers at Princeton now? If Professor Sidney says no, just do it anyway. <laughs> um, no, I, I would say learn everything else. You know, really, I never went to film school. I took very few film production classes in my life. Um, Professor Friedrichs um, def- definitely supported me and, get, and you know, worked within my limited knowledge and helped me. Mm-hmm. But it's that broader education that I learned that I took from other classes that really has helped me in my career. And, and Sue Friedrichs is the one who teaches the, the documentary film class now. I mean, she's amazing. I mean, she's great. And uh, it's funny, like, over, I mean, I guess I've been doing what I do now for about 20 years. Like, I have stayed in touch with Professor Friedrichs and, and you know, just in funny things, whether she's, like, sending me some Princeton students to work with us or I had questions about, you know, how to get in touch with someone. Um, but I would say learn everything else. And then also, you know, you really have to have a vision if you're going to make a film. Like you have to know which direction you want to go to. You don't have to know everything, but you have to like really believe in it or believe in some part of it because it's hard and it takes a really long time and everyone else, you know, you're making very little money and <laughs> you know, there, it has to have a, a very profound personal meaning to you. And that can change. You should never be like locked into that. You, you're allowed to evolve, but mm-hmm. still. All right. And finally, as a documentary filmmaker, you have interviewed countless people in all over the world. So if you were in my chair, what would be the question you want to be asked? What's the one thing that you want to have a chance to share? I feel like you've asked all the good questions. Um, (laughs) My thing is I always go very deep into people's childhoods and, you know, what were those formative experiences and, you know, what and you asked me this question, kind of what shaped me and how did I arrive here? But I always feel like you, like those relationships are very interesting. They're also very universal, and it's a way to, to allow people to empathize with a subject. But I'm happy you didn't go too deep in mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. But um, yeah, that, that's that's. I'm always interested in where people come from. Well, Chai, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us today. Your film, Free Solo, is available to stream all over the web, including on National Geographic's site, Hulu, Amazon Prime. 
I'd also like to thank Dan Kearns, our audio editor, and Daniel Alio, our producer. To our audience, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google Podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.